Everything is a gift from God. Everything. Except what? Faith. Faith is not a gift from God. Saving faith is not a gift from God. It most certainly is. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. We have nothing without your Word. I mean, you exalt your Word above your name. We might ask why that is, when your name exemplifies everything you are. Well, Without the word, we wouldn't know your name. Your, your word is everything to us. It, it gives us knowledge we can't otherwise have. You have revealed to us who you are in your word. You've given, I mean, it's, it's like an infinity in your word, not in, in words, in, in concepts, in understanding and truth, something so far into this world and to us as sinners. Lord, I I pray that you would make the Word do what the Word is meant to do from your heart and in your plan. Make us moldable clay pieces that will one day glorify you for what you have done in and through us. Take now the Word and apply it to our hearts. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I before in the podcast, but this, you know, you can just do expositional preaching. People just love it. We just go through the Bible, you know, and, uh, and we, we expose, we explain what it has to say. And that's great. That's, that's wonderful. Um, the, the Romans has so much depth to it. I mean, you can just skim the surface and come out with evangelistic messages uh, that are, well, you can't do better. And then you can plumb the depths and you can understand just from the standpoint different elements of salvation. You know, whether it's uh, sanctification or justification or glorification or, you know, all of these concepts and you just dig into Romans and dig. So I can come back to Romans and it doesn't really, it's not that it doesn't mean much, it's just there's so much there. But what I want to do is I want to return, and uh, someone asked me a question, and, and people have been asking me this because I, I do talk about it, about discipleship. Go into all the world and make disciples. And what exactly does that mean? You know, it's strange in, uh, in the church that the one thing that Jesus made very plain right from before the writing of any of the New Testament, he hadn't even ascended to heaven yet, and he, he said this, I mean, many things are said in the Gospels. Um, but here he, he's ready to launch, and he says, go into all the world and make disciples. You know, teaching, observe all things that I've told you. You know, lo, I'm with you until the end of the age. You know, go make disciples. He didn't say, build a church. You know, he said, I will build the church. It's, it's his church. He builds the church. For us, 
It's not go evangelize. It's not go win souls. It's not teach people the Bible. All these things are good and they're, they're, they're in the scripture. You know, go pray. Number one, you know, because we have a relationship with God. Talk to him. Praise him. Confess your sins to him. Cleanse. Get cleansed in the blood. Pray. Intercede for others. Sure. But the commission, the commission, there's a lot of commands. The commission is to go make disciples. So what does it mean? Well, what I want to do, and to go make disciples is just what it says. You go, you evangelize someone, part of the process. They come to Christ. Once they come to Christ, they're born again. It's not something we can do. Um, we, we can share the scriptures. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink, right? Um, but you give the word of God. God takes the word. He applies it to the heart, and you're off. A person's born again. They're regenerate. And out of that regeneration comes a living, breathing child of God that can talk to God, that can intercede for others, who can pray, who can talk to God in a way an unsaved person cannot do. They're spiritually dead. They're a person's made alive. So how does discipleship take place? Someone last week told me that discipleship is doing what Jesus did in living close and close, close quarters and sharing your faith and your knowledge and your life with one another and so that people will see the faith in a person and they will, by the Spirit of the living God, in prayer and in holiness uh, and in fellowship and in love and in the Word, um, become more like Jesus as Jesus is portrayed through that person. Didn't say it exactly like that, but that's the idea. And it's a it's good uh, um, form of discipleship or explanation of discipleship because that's what discipleship is. It's, it's Jesus walking with 11 men, one not really a disciple because he, he was never saved. He, he went out and hung himself because he betrayed Christ. That's another story, but that, that there were 11 authentic, real-life uh, three years in close proximity and grew and were tried and, and all, all that that matters. But there's two sides. There's one living, fellowshipping together and not just sitting in a classroom. Um, and the other one is uh, learning the Word of God and allowing that to transform our lives and place under us a strong foundation of truth. And the truth that allows us to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Otherwise, a person is just a baby on a battlefield. And babies go to heaven. Um, and in this sense... A child of God can be a baby for a long time and uh, grow old and, and remain a baby in a sense. That's a terrible thought. No one would want to see a baby at 75 years old um, and not had, having enjoyed life, not having matured, not having reproduced and seeing grandchildren, you know, just remaining a baby. That's, that's what is that? 
unfortunately, and to some extent, that, that is the church, at least in the West. Um, it takes uh, a fulfilling of, God, of Christ's commission to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing in them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, putting them that, through that ordinance, sending them into the Lord's Supper, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus taught. Observe, that's just not like understand what he said that, and mentally, but that's observe as in put into practice. So in Romans chapter 1, and this isn't the focus, I'm just going to run through focus through one very briefly. You know, he opens, and his opening statement is actually uh, an understanding of the Word of God. He's using the Word of God, all people do, as he writes this epistle of Romans, which is like a nutshell, it's like a recap at the end of the Bible. Uh, you look at Romans and you get the Bible in a snapshot, in theology, in practice, in all the meaning that's so important. All the rest of the New Testament gives further color, the history books of the Gospels and Acts and, and the epistles and light, written letters for concern. But here in Romans, you just have the meat of what a person needs in one place. Of course, you need all the scriptures, but in one place to put the foundation under a person's feet so that they can grow to the point where they can reproduce. You know, you get to be mature age when you can marry in God's uh, institution, economy, bring two people together to make a family, bring forth children who bring forth children. And this is discipleship. Leading people to Christ, teaching people, and, and, and not only that, but being a, a, f- a focal point of faith and what it looks like in practice for people. So he begins this wonderful epistle by saying, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, or a sent one, set apart for the gospel of God. He's not set apart to make a church in his own way. He's set apart for the good news of God upon which Jesus builds Jesus builds his church, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Here is this whole sentence is worked towards this, the fulfilling of what the prophets said previously in the Holy Scriptures. And what was said concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David, now we're into the Jewish race, according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God. This is pre-incarnation, before being born a man to a, from a mother's womb uh, in the human race. He's first declared the Son of God. This is the eternal God who, by whom uh, the God the Father created everything. With power by the resurrection from the dead, there's the, the new life that he brings forth from the grave, according to the spirit of holiness, having sacrificed, been sacrificed for our sins to make us holy or separated to God. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through whom, and this is one long, 
you know, run-on sentence, and it's great. I love when God does this. He's not worried about grammar rules right here. He's making a statement with these many parts that can be um, dissected and understood. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Oh, we have received apostleship. What? Not as the twelve, but as those sent forth to what? Make disciples. <clears throat> and, and this is the way he says it in this portion. He doesn't say make disciples. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So he's got called in there. He has being sent as apostles in there. You know, God is in the center of everything. I hope we see, always see God at the center. Is he at the center of the church? To the extent that we do what we want to do, um, bypassing what God has said we should do and the way we should do it and the reasons we should do it, you know, without bypassing, whenever we do bypass, what are we doing? We're doing it, we're, build, we're building it. <clears throat> when we humble ourselves, and we do what God wants us to do, and we do it in his way, then we are he is building the church. As in Matthew chapter 18, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and other places in, throughout the New Testament that call us to hold one another accountable in the faith. For fellowship to be as it was in, in the days of the Acts of the Apostles, when they lived together when they, they sold their houses and their wealth, whatever part they deemed reasonable or wanted to, led by the Spirit, in order that others could live. live. Because they were brought in, they were from all other countries, we know from the day of Pentecost, and those people couldn't go back home because, well, they could, but they'd be killed. You know, they're, they're outside the faith now, they wouldn't be supported, maybe they'd be actually murdered. You know, so what did they do? They made a home for them in Jerusalem. And that was the church of that day. And they were loving one another, and they were in close fellowship, and they were growing, and the numbers were growing, and God, had, as many as God had ordained to eternal life. And it was just a, it was revival. It was long-term revival. <clears throat> and then he continues and says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, called again, this time as saints, which are set apart for a holy purpose, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So having laid that foundation of the holy scriptures and the promises that were to come, and here they are completely fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he then goes on to talk a little personal about spiritual gifts and his own desire to share with them and have them share with him, and it's all personal. Then he goes on to this matter of faith, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He now sets in motion something which is unfortunate, but the devil is always at work, 
um, misunderstood. And often, and I, I was raised this way, so to speak, and when I, as a young person, as a young man, being brought into the faith uh, uh, of the Protestant religion, where uh, Christianity, um, at the time of the Reformers, broke from Roman Catholicism and said salvation is by grace alone. And in that salvation by grace alone, there are other elements to that, which is faith alone. Just looking at those two, salvation is by grace alone and by faith alone. And the way I was made to understand it in the beginning was that faith was nothing. I mean, that's what we were taught. I mean, it's not something that is created by human beings. It is, uh, it's just something that you exercise. Like you sit on a chair, you believe it's going to haul you up. And now you've exercised faith, and that's what you do. So you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You just trust in him that he's going to do what he's going to do, and that's all there is to it. Well, um, for, for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, um, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 make it clear that faith is as, as important. Uh, it's not nothing as grace. Grace is God showing favor that's not deserved. Grace is God imparting what's not there. Uh, faith is bringing forth that which does not exist, according to Romans chapter 4. Um, he's bringing it forth. He's creating something new. When a person is born again, they're brought to life in the Spirit. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. But he has made us alive. He made us alive. No one births themselves. No one chooses to be born. Before you exist, you don't exist. And out of that non-existence, God creates. Whether it's through procreation, through bringing people through birth, or at the creation when he, he created Adam and Eve. You know, we have nothing to do with it. That's the point. To be born again, we have nothing no part in being born again. That's all, all of God. So grace is everything. But I was taught, you know, that faith is nothing, really. You know, why? Because if faith is something, and if it comes from me, you know, how can that be? Because I don't have any part in my salvation. People get that right, mostly. That uh, we have, we play no part in our salvation. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In that one verse, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul is making clear that our righteousness is by faith, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There's just no way around that. So to say that faith is nothing is, well, you can't make faith nothing, but grace is everything. They're side by side. For by grace are you saved through faith. So <laughs> grace is not nothing, and faith is not nothing. So the question now then arises, why do some people want to make faith nothing? You know, the illustration that I was given and I used for some time was, you know, a man falls into the river, 
and he's going down the river and he can't control where he's going and he's going to fall off <clears throat> into a waterfall and he's going to get killed. And he's going to be dashed on the rocks below. And someone throws him a, a life preserver and a rope and he grabs for the life preserver. That's this element of faith, trusting. And then the man pulls in him in through the rope and the life preserver and he gets saved. And so the man didn't do anything. All he did was get pulled by shore, and the man who saved him, you know, the reaching out for the was just an act of faith, and it's really nothing that didn't save him. That's the illustration. <clears throat> now, the, 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 the faith as it is described in the scriptures is, is mo much more than that. If you look at Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 15, you know, God says to to Abraham, you know, don't fear. Look, I'm, I'm going to give you the world. I'm paraphrasing a little, but that's what he's doing. You know, look in the sky, at the stars, count them if you can, and uh, uh, your descendants are going to be like that. And, you know, it meant everything in those days. You know, not like today. You know, you, your descendants were your, your riches. You know, the, you have all of these children and grandchildren and they came from you, and look what they do, and look who they are, and look what they're doing for you. And, you know, it's just it's everything. And so that's where you look, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do for you, Abraham? I'm going to give you a world of descendants. Of course, he was referring to people born into that same faith. People saved by the faith of Abraham, or by the faith like Abraham, saved and changed and transformed and reborn and a new world will be given to all of those who are called into that life, into that faith. And they will grow and they will mature and they will become like God. And this is everything. And it, it happened through what? Through faith. And in that same portion it says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in a moment of time, we're given this, he believed God, and all his sins were wiped clean, and he was made righteous in the sight of God. In uh, Psalm 119, you know, it's, it's very clear in Psalm 119 that man, in uh, verse 1, says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Who, who walks in the law of the Lord? I mean, not sinners. Uh, morally, mentally, emotionally, but not spiritually because you're spiritually dead. There's no communication, there's no connection with God before a person is reborn. But here it says, and right from verse 1, Psalm 119, how blessed are those whose way is blameless. Whose way is blameless? Let alone walking in the law of the Lord. Well, Abram. Abram was made blameless in a moment in time. Look into the sky and uh, see that how your descendants are going to be. And he believed God. And it was reckoned to him. It was on the record. I mean, it's just put in black and white. What? Righteous. Blameless. Blameless before God. More than blameless. Made right. As though Christ's righteousness was given to us as our sins were placed on him. That's what it means to be blameless. And this 
is through faith. This is the faith of Abram. Abraham, whose body was dead at 100 years old, can't have kids. This is impossible. Now, by that time, in Abraham's, when he lived, you know, men didn't reproduce. Not only that, his wife is beyond the years. You know what happens when a woman's beyond the years? I don't have to explain it. She's not having kids anymore. And God said, you're going to have a child. He's, here's a voice. You know, it's a kind of a, there's no burning bush like Moses, but there's a voice and it's saying, you know, I can't see the person who's talking. You know, it's, this is seeing the invisible. This is hearing without seeing. And this is understanding the voice to say, maybe somebody hiding behind a bush over there playing a joke. Uh, Abram understood this to be God. And he believed and he trusted. And him and Sarah had a child beyond years. And that child was the one through whom, Isaac, all the descendants came. And all the descendants and all the descendants. On what? His faith. Now, why would people in the church need to fabricate the idea that faith is nothing? It's just something, you know, you're not part, it's not part of your salvation. You just when picture after picture after picture, and in Romans, you know, Paul goes to Abram's faith, he goes to David, and he pictures it as being made righteous by faith, by grace, through faith. Faith is a part of it. Because people need, many people need to understand, they need to grab hold of and hold on to the idea that they have exercised their freedom of choice. And upon freedom of choice or no decision for Jesus, people go to heaven or hell. And they have to cling to that because if they don't cling to it, in their mind's eye, they see themselves making God this heinous being who destines people to hell or he destines people to heaven. And that's the worst thing you can do because it makes God evil. I heard somebody told me that just a couple of days ago. I've had that told me many, many times. And people may hear this and say, well, doesn't it do that? No, it doesn't do that at all. Actually, he's going on from verse 18 to the end of chapter 1, explaining the extensiveness of man's vileness and sin and man's unwillingness to even accept the idea that there is a God. And he makes himself his own gods and makes them in his own image. And he just lusts and sins more and more and more and more until you get to the very end and it says, understand they're un- they're without understanding, they're untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things, and this is through conscience, are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, not everyone gets as immoral of that, as that, but everyone has that immorality in their soul. And it's proven because Christ was put on the cross by the most religious people of the day. So religion has nothing to do with whether or not what you are in your soul. In our soul, we all nailed Christ to the cross, and in an unsaved state, we just want it that way. 
We want God put to death so we can be God ourselves. I'm not going to take the time to go through Romans chapter 1 and and verses 18 uh, to the end, verse 32. Um, This is all about the, the deepness and the darkness of sin. When you're discipling, the first thing we have to see are the promises of God. The second thing we have to understand is the love of God throughout eternity in redeeming a people for himself. Race was lost. There's, there's no undoing that. And there's no taking it out of God's hands as if God wasn't in control of all things. And when you start to talk like this, people get uneasy and you're blaming God. You know, I'm not blaming God. The Bible's not blaming God. God doesn't blame himself. He speaks the truth clearly. And the truth that he speaks clearly, and if a person is to be discipled well, they need to accept the Bible for what it says and not change it in order to fit their own emotional state or their own conception of the way things have to be in order to make things come out right. That's not how you approach the Bible. That's reading into the Bible what you want to see there. What needs to be done is reading out of the Bible what God put there. There's a big difference between those two. And what God put here is that salvation is by faith. We're made righteous by faith, and that faith is given to us as surely as grace and every other gift that and everything we receive. When the Apostle Paul says, you know, what do you have that you didn't receive? Uh, the answer is nothing. <laughs> nothing. Every part of life, my ability to think and and conceptualize, and see, and hear, and feel. All my senses working. Everything is a gift from God. Everything. Except what? Faith? Faith is not a gift from God. Saving faith is not a gift from God. It most certainly is. If you're going to have the kind of faith that not only believes that you're going to have a child when you're physically impossible, impossible, biologically impossible, and that after that son grows up and God says, I want you to murder that, I want you to put him on an altar and kill him, and you go and do it because you trust God that much, this is not nothing. This is not nothing. This is a saving faith. It's something that is something. It's big something. It's, 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 It's bigger than big. Why? Because it's saving faith. It's bringing people to trust in God in a way that we could never do in our sins, in the deadness of our hearts, separated from the life of God. That's a sinner. A sinner is separated from the life of God. And in that state, a person is going to choose Jesus Christ as Lord. Really? Really? This is much more important doctrine, and I've been focusing on it for quite a while now. And it was important to Martin Luther, it was important to John Calvin, it was important to the, to the Reformers, it was important to the, to the Puritans. You know, just so many, down through, right through Charles Spurgeon in the late 1800s, from the early 1500s, all of those people understood that salvation is by grace through faith, and these elements are from God. And they did not believe, as no one should believe, as is nowhere clearly stated in Scripture, it's only assumed 
that we are saved through, by our, our choice, somehow in a sinful state. So just quickly understanding that God makes clear that he has put into the world um, circumstances, consequences, that tell us that we're evil. He gives us a conscience. For When he says in verse 21 of Romans 1, for even though they knew God, what, what's he talking about? Knew by conscience. We understand that not only conscience, we know right from wrong, but we can conceptualize and understand where something has purpose. Somebody made it. You see a house, you see a car, you see a plow, you know, whatever the thing is, it's made for a reason. Somebody made it. It didn't evolve. Who made everything? There has to be a God. Daddy, where did everything come from? An eternal being. Everything came from nothing, from an eternal being. That's what the Bible says. It's really clear. You can't don't get more clear than that. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Why? Because it had to come from somewhere because it has purpose. It has specificity. The, the world is so complex. And the, the smaller you go into the biology, into, into all of that micro world, it's more and more and more and more intensively complex that scientists have no clue what's going on, how it could possibly happen, how it got that way. And we know how it got that way. God made it that way. So we would understand just how complicated, just that there is a God. So they knew God, but they don't want to know God. So in, in, in verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations and in their foolish heart was darkened. And it's just that darkness comes from the devil who wants God's place and he passes it on to us. And we just take it from the devil because that's where we want to go anyway. So when the devil wants to confuse how we're saved by grace and by God alone, and that God, God could have condemned every single last person and sent everybody to hell because, we're, because it's explained in Romans 1 right here. Because our hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise in all our pride in the sinful condition, they, we could say, became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God who doesn't do anything wrong. I don't, I don't need to defend God. This is the way it happened for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. I mean, just turn God into the lowest thing in the earth, you know, and, and you wind up being God. I mean, that's what idolatry is. It makes God into nothing and us into everything. It's, it's so evil. This is the groundwork. This is the foundation for discipleship because it's laying out how people are saved. The most evil people who could never choose anything right in their life, certainly not for the right reason, who could never choose God first. That's not what's being portrayed in the Gospels when Christ is being nailed to a cross by religious people. So God gives them over in verse 24. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, and, and then you get immorality, and then you get homosexuality, and, and then you get this impossible idea of evolution, uh, transgender. I mean, that's how insane it goes. 
Uh, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, and just, I mean, it just got so bad. And that's what's in the heart of all men. This is the groundwork. Before we get to chapter 2, and that's really the focus, and I've taken an awful long time to get there. But in chapter 2, we read this. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you, who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judges practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, in these verses, it becomes incredibly clear, crystal clear, that there are immoral people who could care less about justifying themselves. But they do. No matter how immoral a person gets, and I've worked at a rescue mission, no matter how immoral they get, they could rob and kill their mother for the next fix. No matter what kind of impurity, immorality men and women get involved in, just degrade themselves before a God who requires marriage and devotion and covenants and vows, and all of this. You know, to just go and use people as if they were things. You know, and we can all get there. This isn't making some worse than others. You know, it's by the grace of God, some people in their lifetime, you know, are devoted to morality. But it doesn't matter how moral outwardly people are. It doesn't matter how straight, it doesn't matter that they don't cheat, and they don't steal, and they've never murdered anybody, and they're just as straight as an arrow can be when compared to Almighty God who calls for worship. And there is no worship. All people are totally, completely, undeniably accountable to Almighty God. And is God righteous, would he be, in sending the entire race of Adam, into hell for all eternity. Absolutely he would be. Didn't have to save anyone. And this is also part of what I, I, I understand and men throughout the ages have understand a corruption of the gospel. As if somehow God was bound a second time to save men. He was bound to save men in order to be righteous. You want to talk about misunderstanding or misconceptualizing who God really is. God did not have to do that. That is a misunderstanding of the gospel. God saved people once. It was always in the plan. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. The whole race is corrupt, and there's nothing in us, in us by way of choice or by faith, that would ever save us. Not going to happen. That's a misreading of Romans 1 and the whole of the New Testament concerning the sinfulness of men. So once that's understood, that God by his sovereign choice and his grace, and as Jonathan Edwards, that brilliant theologian, 
in the 18th century, preached sinners in the hands of an angry God and many, many other sermons that would be worth your while to read. You can listen to them. People have read those sermons and you can listen to them, not from Jonathan Edwards, but from other men. And those, those sermons make it perfectly clear. It's just nothing more than God's arbitrary will by which, in his grace, he saved some. That's all to his praise. And all the men who are moral and make moral decisions and in of themselves think that they have chosen Christ. And here's where it really becomes important to think this through. If you're not making much of it, oh, well, you know, it's just an in-house debate and, you know, some believe in free will and some don't and some believe in Calvin and some don't. And make light of this. I would caution you not to make light of this and I'll tell you why. Because I can't read anyone else's heart. And so I come up to a brother and, and I understand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and I understand the, the significance of grace and of faith in salvation. And I understand that the, these elements of salvation are given to us by God, by his grace. In grace, he gives us this element of faith by which we are saved. And without that, I can't be saved. And this is all part of the, the divine plan. And I'm not going to go into all the plan right here, but there's more to this understanding the plan. But in all of that, this other person, this brother says, no, no, that's all wrong. Faith is nothing, and it's your choice, and men have to be free, and if not, you make God evil. In all of that, I don't know what's going on in their heart. I don't know that they're not full of self-deception, and they're sending themselves to hell by believing that. And the reason I put it in that way is I believe a person could be mistaken, could have been deceived to the point of hanging on to that heretical teaching of free will and get to heaven. I don't know that they can't. I don't know who will and who won't. If it's heresy, if it's something that could be believed and still get to heaven. We don't know who, who, who that is, and we don't know how many won't get to heaven because in the depths of their heart, they're believing that it was their choice. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. Faith is either a gift or it's nothing. If it's a gift and it's really something, and I think I've at least partly proved that it really is something from the standpoint of Abram and others, that that faith is something by which we really are saved and it's something important. If that's the case and the person's really believing in their heart that they chose Christ, that they believe in Christ, they could be sending themselves to hell in believing that and they're not really a believer at all and they don't really they haven't really changed. They, they haven't really been transformed. Maybe they were moral before they made that decision and the morality just increased in a way as they beheld other Christians and they, they kind of mimicked their behavior and maybe their cursing went away and maybe their drinking went away and you know, but they haven't been transformed. They're not born again. They haven't been saved by grace through faith. It, it never happened. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 1, every one of you who passes judgment. Such a person is still passing judgment. Only now it's, I'm a Christian and you're not. And your lack of Christianity is sending you to hell and I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. That's a terrible thing. Is this a little doctrine? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think Luther got it right. I think everything hinges on this. Are we saved by grace through faith or human choice? Are we still in control? You know, the man who first came up with this was a man by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius didn't believe in original sin. He believed that you had to actually choose to sin in the first time. And when you sin the first time, then you're a sinner. But there was that goodness that was in there until that first time that you sinned. And that goodness is that kind of goodness that people believe you still have when you have the choice to choose Jesus Christ. There's no such goodness in the scriptures. Does the scriptures make people evil like demons and that they are completely evil? No, not at all. So what are you saying? You can't have it both ways. I'm not having it both ways. What the scripture does is it makes people... Um, moral in the sense of their, their soulish condition. You know, we, we think, we conceptualize, we understand, and we make choices. Those choices are not as a result of God in us because before salvation there is no God in us. God made us to be connected with him and that he would be the source of our righteousness. He is Jehovah Tzidkenu, uh, the Lord our righteousness. It was always meant to be that way. We're meant to understand that the source of everything, including goodness and holiness and justice and love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and joy and peace, everything is, has its source in the living God. And as such... That source, which is God, is the source of our holiness, our goodness. It's, it's, it's absent in the person who's not born again. It's absent in the sinner that's not yet been saved by grace. It's absent in the person, no matter what the moral state is, no matter that they can think and do good things, the absence is that God is absent. And that's kind of a big thing. You can be as moral as you want. You're going to hell if the source of your morality is not Jesus Christ, is not God in the person of Jesus Christ. You will, you will go to hell because of your thinking you're good, of being God in your own eyes, in being morally dead so far as God is the source is concerned. All of this is is biblical, very, very, very biblical. And I could prove it passage after passage after passage. And I'm not going to beat this horse about free will, even though it's worth beating, but I will go through Romans um, as a means of discipling, of understanding the truth necessary out of which we grow in faith, and we grow to maturity, 
and we grow to the point where we can not only lead others to Christ, but disciple them to maturity so that they also can lead others to Christ and mature them to, so that they can lead others to Christ. That's the plan. It's not build the church, it's make disciples. And you can do that anywhere. You need to be mature, you need to be responsible, you need to be accountable to the body, that, whatever body that may be, not a numbers doesn't make a body. Gifted people doesn't make a body. What makes a body is mature, born-again believers who, have, who are mature enough to be a family and bring others along with them. And so, in so doing, become the church. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you, Lord, for this truth apart from which there is no message. The truth that we are to make disciples. We are to bless people with our understanding of what's right. And I know everyone who listens to this, as it should be done in any church, is to question it all and to prove it out of the text. I pray, Lord, that my readers, my hearers would do that. That they would prove it expositionally themselves, not reading into it what they want to see, but reading out of it what's there, only what's there. I thank you for the reformers who, not by themselves alone, they were saved by your grace, and they were given tools by which they would return the gospel to the world by understanding the truth of the gospel in all its aspects. I, I pray, dear Lord, that we would be steadfast and work to do the same in our time and not to be willing to hear untruth and say, oh, that's not important. We know, Lord, that all truth is important because every lie is evil. And because you are truth and you are the source of truth and you never lie. And so what we want is we want to be like you and we want to further who you are. And that means that we must tell the truth and we must never lie. So I pray that you would sow these seeds in our heart that we might properly bless you and honor you and glorify you in all things. We ask all of these things for the honor and the praise and glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.